Awesome, Christine. Welcome to the Future of Fashion Business Podcast. Great to have you here. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. No, likewise. I'm very, very, very excited. It's been a while since the last time that I spoke with somebody uh, with, you know, more of a sustainability focused uh, mm -hmm. part of the industry. Uh, and it is something that I think has evolved a lot in the last couple of years, definitely since the last time I've had the conversation. So I'm also very, very excited on, on the topics that we're going to talk about. Oh yeah, for sure. Happy to go into that. I've been doing this for like 15 years. So the last five years has been very different from the previous 10 before that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, well, now that you said that, uh, that pretty much makes me want to dive straight into the episode and ask you, I mean, how did you get started? Because 15 years, I mean, this is, this is a sort of like career path that I guess a lot of people are considering now that it has gotten the attention that it has gotten the last couple of years, but I mean, 15 years ago, I'm, I mean, probably it wasn't even like a formal job. It was just like, a, you know, something that you enjoyed doing and somebody gave you the opportunity and gave you a title for what for that. So uh, like, how, how did you sort of end up in, in this in this part of the industry specifically? Yeah, it was very different. So uh, you're right about that. Like, you know, I look now and I see you can have special, you know, you can major in this in school, you can have your master's program focused on sustainability and not just sustainability, but on life cycle assessment or really specific things. And when I started, that was definitely not the case. So I got into this, um, I, I, I started my career as a corporate lawyer and this was back in 2002. And I practiced law for three years. I was doing venture capital and private equity law didn't like it. So then I went and got my MBA at INSEAD in France and Singapore. And it was when I was graduating that I started the career in sustainable fashion. And that was with a small startup called Eden Apparel, which was founded by Ali Hewson and Bono from U2. And the, the purpose of this company was to create sustainable employment opportunities in sub-Saharan Africa. And within Eden, I, which was a small startup, it was about 20 people, you know, doing um, uh, high-end uh, men's and women's contemporary fashion. And they wanted to start a B2B business, which is very similar to actually what I'm, I'm doing at Pangaea, which I'll, we'll get into, I'm sure. Uh, and this B2B business was going to be focused on providing uh, blank t-shirts, sweatshirts that were 100% made in Africa to try to keep the value add within the continent of Africa so that the, the capacity building and, and skill upskilling and everything would stay in the continent. Um, so that was my first, my first job in sustainability and in sustainable fashion. So this was back in 2006. So definitely at Eden was a really pioneering. And um, yeah, at this, my title was business development manager. It was really like building out the brand, but there was such a strong impact. I mean, the mission was impact. So that that's kind of where things started out. And most companies did not have like their CSR departments or sustainability departments. Uh, it was just something that was getting started. So definitely really different from what we see today, thankfully. Right. Yeah. So it was more of a matter of, of the brand and the founders looking at this as a future before it actually, like people were actually thinking about it and understanding the, the necessity of somebody to focus on that, have that sort of focus in their business strategy. And it just happened to be you. And it was just something that, again, because it was a requirement the company saw beforehand that you sort of just sort of fell into, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when I was at business school, I um, realized but before 
I entered business school, I kind of thought you either had to be in a for-profit company or a nonprofit organization and that there was nothing in the middle. And it didn't really, there wasn't that much in the middle. And this was, again, back in 2006, it was the year that uh, Muhammad Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize for microfinance. And so this idea of microfinance that, you know, you can kind of combine uh, an impact purpose with market-driven strategies and this combination that you can be in the middle and you don't have to be just one or the other because when I was thinking about my career like I did not want to be in a big huge company where my job was very defined and I felt like a cog in the wheel but I also didn't want to be in like an NGO where I might only have impact on a small amount of people or again be in a gigantic NGO where I'd be like a cog uh, just like just focused on my 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 tiny perimeter um yeah, so or just limited be, by, you know, lack of resources, a lot yeah. of limit, the limitations on, on impact that come with just working for a, non, for a nonprofit. Yeah. So this idea of um, using the market to drive impact is something that I'm actually really passionate about and trying to understand what are the incentives that we need to put in place that will drive everybody to make the right decisions. So, you know, after Eden... Um, I worked at INSEAD, which is where I did my MBA in the Entrepreneurship Center there. And I was looking at double, triple bottom line companies and how you manage the trade-off between the financial return you want to achieve and the impact. And so that's really been a driving force behind my career is like, how, how do you merge these two? How do people respond to be able to make sure that they're not mutually exclusive, the finance and the impact, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the revenue and the impact um, drivers. Right. Yeah. Because as you said, it is extremely important for it to be incentivized. If it isn't incentivized, then it's mm-hmm. going to be very difficult to have, a, you know, substantial progress in that area. And the biggest mm-hmm. incentives for a corporation, it is, you know, how financially viable or productive is it to, for you to focus on that area of the business development. So uh, I definitely understand. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'm guessing, and pr- correct me if I'm right, but if I'm wrong, but the sort of process probably uh, when something like this, right? Like you had, you know, the innovators, maybe smaller brands that were less, had less of a corporate structure that were looking, maybe felt passionate about these specific areas because they saw the impact that, uh, you know, being sustainable or being conscious in terms of your, your supply chain, what you were doing was something that they, ne- they didn't necessarily do with because of the money or the, the financial incentives. It was just like a sort of like a personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that it eventually developed into something that was way more than just something that was personally rewarding, but also that could be also financially viable for a business once the market accepted it and once that the market grew in, in awareness and level of education. And once you got those two factors, the mm-hmm. obviously the fulfillment, both personal and from a corporation perspective of being mm-hmm. uh, conscious in this area of, of, the, of the business model, and also the fact that it was also financially uh, viable and not only viable, but like it was a major financial incentive. Now that's why everybody's sort of like getting on this train of, of focusing on this area of, of development for each and every company. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we have like a lot of tools in our toolbox now for making this case for sustainability. So, you know, again, I've been doing this since 2006 and I got to say, sometimes I'm sitting around going, Oh my gosh, this is the exact same conversation. You know, when people are saying things like, 
let's tell the story behind our product. Like we've been saying that for 15 years. Now we have, or probably longer, you know, but <laughs> now we have the technology that allows you to tell that story. You know, we have um, within Pengaya, for example, we're using digital passports by this innovator called Eon, where you can a consumer can use a QR code and really look back and see the, the journey of the product from the sourcing of the raw material. This, we didn't really have the same technology that long ago, but everybody was talking about, we need to tell the story of the product. You know, I think um, another thing is everyone used to say like, oh, we need to make sustainability sexy or desirable. And that's, you know, been the same conversation. And now again, with the new innovations, material science innovations we're seeing or new uh, techniques that fabric or dye mills have, like we, we're able to kind of get Within Pengaya, an example of this would be like the um, nettle. We're using nettle mm -hmm. historically or hemp, you know, and historically it's been like, oh, you're going to wear nettle or hemp. You're going to feel like you're wearing a potato sack. It's going to be scratchy and terrible and no one wants to have that. It's not desirable. But now we're able to actually make the nettle and the hemp feel amazing. And we have nettle in our jeans. We have nettle in our jersey and it feels as good as the, the nicest cotton. So, um, you know, Nowadays, we have more possibility to fulfill the sustainability mission in a way that resonates with consumers, which is incredibly important. And we also have a number of other drivers. So another reason, a number of reasons like why we have these tools to, to make the case. And, you know, regulation is one. There's so much new Mm -hmm. regulation coming down the so pike po so from so there has been progress from a, from a politics perspective as well totally i mean now there are um more um producer responsibility regulations so that whoever is selling a product is responsible for the end of life of that product there's a i live in paris so there's um, a french law that you cannot destroy excess inventory mm -hmm. and and all of this is going back to the incentives it's going to drive companies to behave differently so i think that's quite important and another thing that's huge is that there's a lot of data now that shows that companies that are acting more sustainably are actually more profitable mm -hmm. and if you look at the dow jones sustainability index the companies who are on this index are perform outperforming companies that are not. So you you also have this business case on, on the revenue side to say, look, this is actually going to help our business. You, you need a long-term perspective, which might mm -hmm. be different. But, you know, we, we have many reasons now to say this is actually the right way of doing business. And we can, we have a lot of proof points that we can point to and a lot of data. Mm -hmm. So I think that makes, makes it much easier yeah, the argument's uh, a little start yeah, implementing. Yeah. Yeah. The arguments become a little bit, well, a lot easier to, to sort of resolve because exactly. that's, that's what I find very, very interesting for, for you to being, you know, in, in this part of the industry for so long. I mean, you've seen it evolve in every single aspect of it, not only evolve from a technical, a technological perspective, as you said, politically, but also just how the discourse and the conversations has changed over time and who's having those conversations. Right. Because again, mm -hmm. at the at the very beginning, it was, you know, the, innovators, the, the entrepreneurs that saw this as a possibility, maybe as a personal duty to do so, but they were limited by, you know, lack of technology, uh, mm -hmm. lack of financial support because people didn't really believe it, uh, political challenges. And the conversation has switched completely into something that, again, is being incentivized in every single area of it, again, financially, mm -hmm. because again, it, 
there's starting to be proof of it being a, a, a solid financial strategy for a business uh, politically, because again, polit politicians either, if you want to argue because people are more aware of it or politicians themselves are more aware of it are pushing policies forward to support mm -hmm. this. And it's, it's just something that has gotten a lot of momentum in a good way. But yeah. I find it very interesting, and, and I want to connect this to my next question. What has been, in your personal sort of awareness of this entire thing, the biggest uh, and most important factor that determined the progress of this area uh, of, you know? So what's driven this conversation around sustainability to the forward. forefront yeah to the forefront yeah. and who's what 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 has had the biggest effect on this yeah going forward yeah that is a great question and you know i think it's been covered in the news much more than it was before and the it's been really focused on sort of um the climate the conversation around climate and I think people are seeing actually the effects of uh, climate change in their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, so that's been, you know, one person told me a long time ago that if, if you want to get someone to pay attention to something, you have to really bring it close to them and why it's important to them as an individual. And they compared it to like a uh, dropping a pebble into a pond and you can see that ripple effect floating out. And um, the conversation around carbon 10 or 15 years ago was sort of one of those outer ripples because people, it was too abstract and people didn't really understand like carbon emissions, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, and things around like food would be much easier for people to understand it's going in their body or much more, um, uh, much more of a priority for them to pay attention to because it's going in their body and then you have your clothes. And, but I think with carbon, something that started as really abstract 10 or 15 years ago has gotten very real for people because they're seeing the effects of climate change in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, they're seeing it through the extreme weather events that they're, that they're experiencing and they're seeing it on the news. You know, they're seeing um, strange storms or, or the sea level rising coverage and all of this. And so then it becomes really important to the consumer and rightly or wrongly, the focus on the consumer is, is, so important for all business because they're, they're buying the, the, the product. Mm -hmm. So once the consumer starts making those connections and starts demanding this type of product or service, then the businesses respond much more quickly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think if you look at the BBC, um, they published the, the documentaries with um, uh, Sir David Attenborough. Uh, which were incredibly powerful, like Blue Planet. And people would see that. I think, you know, we do have a lot of amazing storytelling happening. Mm -hmm. So in addition to like news, uh, regular news um, coverage, the storytelling and the documentaries and everything that we're seeing, like Kiss the Ground, the documentary about regenerative agriculture. Yep. People see that and it really changes how they're looking at the way they're living their lives or consuming. Mm -hmm. So I think... Um, this uh, imagery, yeah. these visuals, this coverage has has really and, and the live experiences that people are having has has made it much more of a uh, a reality and something that people have to pay attention to now. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, it's fine because it was almost almost like a, a natural result of again just the marketplace people in general becoming more educated, and it was mm -hmm. funny that. 
you know, educating a person is, I mean, educating one person is extremely difficult on a, a, to- a specific topic. Can you imagine, you know, educating an entire country or, you know, entire yeah. planet on something like this? So it's very interesting now that you mentioned it. Yeah, just how big of a role uh, content that almost seems has has a lot of entertainment value in its nature has been mm-hmm. responsible for educating a lot of people on this particular topic. And again, mm-hmm. people need to, I think, I think, I think people forget that the business's responsibility is to respond to the demands and the needs of the marketplace, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the marketplace that change changes philosophy, again, increases levels of education, the business won't have any, any alternative, but to adapt to that eventually, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think that it's been a process that's been, and here's, here's when I, when I, because I'm, I'm not very, obviously I'm not very savvy mm-hmm. on this topic at all, but. No, you've, you you can tell you put a lot of thought into it. So it's great. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, but you can, you, I mean, people have been, or at least you hear this in the media a lot about people complaining about, mm-hmm. you know, how slow this entire change has been happening. But I mean, it is something that's been in the works for decades, right? I mean, the the, oh, yeah. the change seems superficially like it happened in a couple of years, but I mean, the, that was just sort of like the uh, the pivotal event, right? For exactly. this entire movement. It's been in the works for years and years and years with people it like has. yourself and others just trying to push it forward. It was the tipping point. Like we reached sort of the tipping point in the last three to five years, you know, and everyone's going, oh my gosh, because even... Um, during like public speaking engagements, I'd say five years ago, I'd ask the audience, what are some of the things you think of when you hear sustainability? What words would you use to describe if a product is more sustainable? And five years ago or six years ago, when I do this, people would be, uh, it's, it's not as good. It's more expensive. It's a big constraint. Um, it's an obligation. It's uh, compliance. You know, the, everything was very negative. And now um, when I ask the same questions, it's really changed. And people see sustainability as providing more opportunity as, you know, um, uh, the right way to do things as, you know, uh, the future. It's, it's really interesting to see how in sort of this public zeitgeist, <laughs> it's completely turned around. Yeah, it's become almost aspirational. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's the right awesome. way to put it. Awesome. And, and how going going to this question because it is a definition that is going to change and is going to evolve and develop a lot especially mm-hmm. has been in the last couple of years what would you define as sustainability mm-hmm. now yeah i think sort of the traditional definition is that you leave the world um in no worse of a of a place for, for your future generations so you don't want to deliver a damaged world to your children and um, so I think that's still what what I um, would would stick to when I hear sustainability. Uh, it's a very overused term now. You know, everyone's exactly. kind of throwing everything into the the bucket. Um, and now I think something that's really exciting that a lot of companies are focused on is not just we want to keep the status quo and and not have too much of a negative impact, but looking at how to have a positive impact. And with Pangaea, our vision is to be earth positive. And, you know, we're focused on material science innovations. And the way we looked at that is saying, well, look at regenerative agriculture systems, look at carbon capture technologies. We use mm-hmm. one called Air Ink that takes carbon emissions and turns it into a black ink that you can 
use on to screen print. Um, so I think looking at this future of possibilities around in where you could actually leave the world potentially in a better place for future generations, that's quite a quite an exciting concept. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to ask you that question, because, you know, as, mm -hmm. as, as topics, words are overused, they start losing or at least abstracting it yeah. once again. And it did happen mm -hmm. with this, with this, you know, what's this, the sustainability word, I guess what you're, what, what's fascinating about thinking about it that way is that again, it's more, more than a specific definition. It all, it just almost describes like this, this philosophy to, to create something for the better. It could be, mm -hmm. It could be from an from an ecological perspective. It could be from a political perspective, from a personal perspective, or maybe maybe yeah. corp corporate culture. You know, so mm -hmm. I think one of the the best things about looking at it that way is that you're able to grasp uh, something that might be an abstract topic and see how you can apply it and focus on something real yeah. and in a specific yeah. business. Right. Because I think mm -hmm. a lot of people, and this is very relevant to people starting out, you know, businesses with the scale that Pangaea has or biggest businesses like the mm -hmm. caring group, which is also a place where, where you've had some experiences. They've mm -hmm. able, they're, they're able to grasp very abstract concepts and sort of be, okay, like we're going to work on the, eco on the <laughs> ecological part. We're going to work on the political part because they have a lot of, you know, they have thousands of people working for them. They have big resources. They can move the ship into that direction. But somebody that's starting out, you know, might be very, very overwhelmed because of the, uh, again, you say sustainability, it's like, okay, but what, 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 what does sustainability mean? Does it mean that I should have like products that are ecologically friendly? Does it mean that, that I should have like a specific corporate culture that promotes, uh, I don't know, uh, working with people in, in good working conditions? What, what does that word mean? And by sort of being okay, so it, as long as you understand the fundamental principle of what it means, you can sort of adapt to it with, to whatever seems natural to you and your, and your, and your, your personal philosophy, you know, as a business, you mm -hmm. can, you can take responsibility and focus in one area of the business. You know what, we're going to focus all of our resources on maybe the ecological part of sustainability, or we're going to use our financial resources to push and innovate the, uh, the, the corporate culture or the, uh, you know, the working conditions on third world countries, part of it, it, it gives, it opens a new world of ambitions and possibilities to the everyday entrepreneur on what area of that specific part of the industry they want to focus on and they want to innovate and develop on. Right. Yeah. I love, I love how you put that because that's, this is really, really an important point is. And you do have to prioritize within the world of sustainability. Like what is, what is the thing that you're most passionate about as a designer or an entrepreneur in, in, in terms of the brand? Is it carbon? Is it the social side and, and working with um, people in the supply chain? Um, you know, is it uh, the material? Fabric innovation, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and you can, you have to focus. You know, I do talk to brands and they'll say, oh, we want to use your material, but then if we ship it, then it's not sustainable. And it's like, you, you can't do everything. You, yeah. you know, there are pros and cons and there are trade-offs and you just have to say, what is my North Star? Where am I going to try to be as perfect as possible? And um, where do I need to make some compromises to get to this North Star? You know, because if, if we all stop and say, we need to be perfect everywhere now, not feasible. we're going to get paralyzed, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's too much. Yeah, of course, it's not feasible, especially for, you know, the brands that are really dictating the future of industries, because I strongly believe, I mean, big groups are big groups are really good at responding very well and maybe long term making it better because of the leverage that they have. But it's 
I don't want to say small brands because Pangaea definitely isn't small, but it is a brand that has a lot more flexibility in terms of what they can do and achieve and they can do it at a faster pace. And it's, it is brands like that who have to come up with those decisions, right? Of, okay, what's my part? Like, what's my part of play? I'm not going to disrupt the entire industry because if I try doing that, my entire brand's going to go down. It's not going to be feasible. And I'm going to have, I'm just, I'm going to have zero impact. I think people should really think about it as how can we approach this as a collective and what is the one thing that you are going to commit to be responsible for and, 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 and collaborating in? Cause it is, yeah. it is that way. And I, 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 that is the only real way to have solid progress and, and, and such a complex and vast, uh, I would say mm-hmm. just problem in this part yeah. of the industry. Yeah. Cause humanity is complex and you can't just break it down to one thing and say, you know, and you can't simplify, oversimplify it. Um, right. But I do, yeah, I think your point about big versus small companies is is um, really interesting as well, because with Pangaea, obviously it is much more agile and the focus of Pangaea is material science innovations. And so it's really saying we can move quickly. We have allocated resources internally for material science innovations. So we have like an R&D team of 15 people they're ex-Adidas, ex-Lululemon, ex-Burberry, so incredible expertise across different segments, uh, understand the performance levels needed. Um, they can identify and work with the best innovators for the best technologies. We have uh, a lot of resources that have gone into impact as well. So with our impact team and doing life cycle assessments across over 90%, I believe, of our materials. And then we have supply chain partnerships. Um, so we can get very close to these really, I mean, the suppliers are key in, in making any of this a reality. And so by working with them so closely, we can iterate, we can improve, and we can get things out very quickly. And even if Pangaea is smaller, it can be that proof point on the market saying, look, we launched it, we did it. And it de-risks things for everybody. And right. you know, it, it makes it easier for others who want to launch the same thing and have been maybe too afraid and and it shows what that that is possible and that it's resonating not that i mean there are so many big brands doing incredible work and getting innovations out there too so pangai is doing its part in this in this bigger bigger picture because you know we are still um a growing company on this journey like like everybody else is so there's no uh feeling of like i, I think we're, we're really looking at the collaborative aspect of this and how can we play our part in, uh, in working with these innovators to try to be that agile speedboat as opposed to the bigger, mm-hmm. bigger cruise ship or, or Titanic sort of ship, which, which some of the bigger um, uh, companies might be in, in trying to get innovation in particular out faster. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's very, very interesting how that works. And I think, again, to just make it a little bit easier for people to understand, it really is about focusing on what, what's the part that you're going to play and being very, very specific on that. Cause that's the, that's the best thing that you can do eventually or long-term for if you want to do push uh, uh, or, or solve a problem like this long-term cause it is and the industry's work is a collective. I mean, that's the nature of competition, right? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's how do we continuously do our part, improve on it. And based on that move forward. And that's how the entire process works. I mean, whenever you play your part, you open, you open opportunities for other people to play their part better. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's just a, a cycle of, of, of feedback yeah. that, that eventually mm-hmm. will open and creates, and creates solid movement long-term. You know, it's not, it's not like this 
I mean, and, and that's what's particularly difficult about industries like the fashion industry, because there's, you could, you could probably do this with technology, right? Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of scale, like there's a lot more simplicity and when it comes to growth and a lot of different things like that, but because the fashion industry is so complex, it, it, mm-hmm. it cannot have the same approach. Like it has, it has to be collaborative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. And sustainability in general has been a place where there's more of a desire to collaborate. You know, you can call it like cooperation or something um, because <laughs> there's a tension for sure between uh, we want to collaborate. We know the impact is important, but brands also saying, but we still want to be first to market. We still see this as a competitive advantage. Um, so, and then of course you have to be sort of in a pre-competitive um, uh, space in order to do really good collaboration um, with right. with other brands. So, but but no, I mean, I think there are a lot of examples today of how this is happening. There's uh, Textile Exchange, which Panga is a member of, is a great organization getting brands together around these important topics. Fashion for Good, specifically around innovation, is an accelerator. It has a number of of big brands um, like uh, well, Caring, PVH. Um, uh, target, you know, all working toward the same objectives together and, and providing that space where we can find collaboration to try to move the needle on impact. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of the conversation, like it ha- the, the, the best thing about it, that it, it's now a thing about like, it is productive from a business perspective. I have this philosophy as well, because as yeah. you said, like this, the opportunity to improve now mm-hmm. becomes the opportunity to have a competitive advantage, which will reflect mm-hmm. itself as a business opportunity or as a solid business strategy, which, and I don't know much about, about Pangaea, but superficially and based on the research that I've, that I've, that I've done, mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. like this part, the sustainability part, the innovation behind the fabrics is probably one of the biggest factors of what makes Pangaea something different from, or, or did yeah. something different from its competitors. Because uh, yeah. Yeah. it is important to also think about it that way. Yeah, and but we're trying to open up as much as possible all of the learnings that we have. And so that's, you know, I'm on the B2B side of the business at Pangaea. So in addition to our direct-to-consumer brand, which I'm sure many listeners know and, and see the text block on, on the, um, uh, the chest, which transparently says like what, what is in the product, um, the B2B side is trying to be this collaborative arm where we say we want to be the innovation concierge and provide this turnkey solution saying, these are all the technologies that we think are the best that are out there that we've been able to identify. We've worked with our R&D team um, to get them to the right performance levels with our suppliers. Mm -hmm. We've done all the required testing. We've done the life cycle assessments on the impact side. And now we can work with you brands, other brands, and let you access what we have and work with you to improve it or do custom, you know, custom uh, research with you on development with you on certain pain points that you're having. So it, it's really, yeah, trying to, we, we say open source as, yeah, it, as much it as possible. Yeah, it is open source. Yeah, it is open mm-hmm. source. And that's, that's the benefit of it. And that's, that's what ma- what's magical about competition, because I think, People look at competition as something that is, you know, cutthroat, but it is mm-hmm. for me, it's just, it's, it's the feel for innovation. And yeah. when you are able to have both innovation and uh, an open source philosophy, that's where you real things really, really yeah. start moving quickly in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, another question I want to ask you, I know you're more focused on the B2B aspect. Mm-hmm. 
of, of sustainability, I guess. Uh, but I mean, the 15 year long, year long career, you have probably been very in touch with also the, the direct consumer aspect of it all. So mm-hmm. what would you say the biggest differences? Uh, and let me, let me think of, of a more specific way to ask this question. Uh, what, what would be the biggest difference from a, from the, from a business perspective and understanding how to handle direct like business to consumer sustainability strategies and yeah. business to business sustainability strategies, because I'm mm-hmm. guessing it works completely different. Yeah, there, there are definitely differences. So, you know, I think when you're talking to the consumer, going back a bit to what we were saying on how, how can you make it relevant for them and their lives? How can you make it desirable, mm-hmm. accessible? Uh, I think our, our content team at Pangaea is incredible and comms team at, at being able to communicate these really complex technologies and the reason why they're important in a way that's fun for the consumer, that's getting their attention, that doesn't seem pedagogic or boring. So, you know, you want to keep this. Um, the emotional this, aspect of. The emotional aspect, the community building part, the, uh, yeah, and the the fun of it. You want to keep, you, sustainability can get you really depressed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you start going, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? We only have 10 years left. Everything's going to go over the 1.5 degrees. It's over, you know, and uh, I think um, you you have to keep it interesting and fun and to engage people yeah. as, as much as you can. I mean, it's, we know it's a serious topic, but we, we also want to keep people excited. Yeah, you have, a brand, about you have a brand to protect. Yeah. 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 And there is opportunity and we can do this, but we can only do it if we're all working on it together. And if um, we're all understanding why and, and what our role is, you know, you're really good at saying we all have our part to play. Like what is the part we can play? So I think on the consumer uh, conversation, those, those are really important aspects. And then when we're talking with the brands, they're the, the brands are the ones that have to create the product or the service and have to get it out there. So they're really concerned with the risk. Um, is this product going to be as good? Is it, um, going to meet our performance criteria? Are people going to accept it if it's new? So for them, it's how do you de-risk things for them? How do you show them that the work has been done? Um, that all the testing has been done or that, you know, with Pangaea, the direct consumer brand I was mentioned, as I mentioned, can be this proof point saying, look, we did it. It went well, consumers liked it. So then they can kind of go, okay, all right, that's going to be all right. Um, And then I think there's also this credibility aspect because if you're working with a company on a B2B level, they need to be a uh, reliable supplier for you. Uh, And you need to be able to establish relationships where you know they're going to be responsive, where they're going to deliver, um, and so I think that's something that's really important for Pangaea on the B2B side is to convey that we can do this, that we mm-hmm. have um, the supply chain partnerships in place, which we do. We have RDD Textiles in uh, Portugal that we're working with very closely. Their fabric mill and dye house. Uh, we also have Grado Zero in Italy, which has, uh, has uh, invented and developed our flower down technology, for example, which is our insulation that is made from wildflowers. So it's animal free and petroleum free, hundred percent natural. So really incredible minds constantly looking at how we're going to make new, new materials to solve some of the pain points we're seeing. And then we have other great partners um, on the industrialization side as well. Like uh, Imbotex is a partner of ours in Italy and with the flower down, we're doing a non woven padding with them. So for quilted jackets, stuff like that. 
And when you say to another brand, well, hey, we're working with Invitex or RDD on this, they go, oh, amazing. Okay. Because I know that from my experience at Caring, where I was focused on sustainable innovation, you'd find a technology, you would love to use it. And, but then you're really concerned. Okay. Like these are two guys, maybe one's a scientist and the other one just got out of business school and they have Mm. an amazing technology, but can you really offer this up to a gigantic brand saying, look what we found, you know, you, you need, and, and sometimes you can, I don't want to say, I mean, obviously sometimes you can, but I just, it's, it goes to this idea of um, the credibility and getting the brands to say, okay, we know that this supplier will be reliable. We know we can go to them. So this is what needs to be conveyed to the B2B customer, right. um, which we're trying to, to develop and develop those relationships, you know, within the Pangaea B2B arm course. Wow. So many cool things to talk about. So little time. Mm-hmm. Let me see. So yeah, just to summarize everything from a B2C perspective, it's more about communicating efficiently from a business, mm-hmm. business to business perspective is more about having internal trust uh, between, you know, people, suppliers, yeah. partners, and financial risk aversion. Yeah. Not just financial risk, but I would say reputational Rep- risk. Branding, well. branding, branding, yeah. branding, yeah. branding risks more than anything. Both. Okay. both. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and I think also on the sustainability side, there's a huge um, uh, risk now for everybody around greenwashing because it has become so important. And that's also why the impact data, having that um, to be able to communicate, to have internally, but also to be able to communicate if you want to is, is really important on the, the reputational risk side as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And mm-hmm. one, one question that I do want to ask you, and I hope we get the chance to cover it uh, before we, we have to wrap up the episode is I'm very interested in the transition that you had from, you know, a group like caring into mm-hmm. something sort of like the role that you're doing now, and you might be doing similar roles, maybe not, but I mean, your the environment has been completely different, I'm guessing. So, uh, from a sustainability perspective and, and the thing, the, mm-hmm. the thing that you try to focus on, on your work, what has been the biggest shift and the mm-hmm. biggest difference from going, you know, work in an environment like caring with maybe a lot more resources, but a lot more complexity mm-hmm. from a corporate structure mm-hmm. perspective to something like Pangaea. Yeah. Uh, definitely different. Definitely. As, as you pointed out and um, people have commented on this a few times, like, wow, it must be so different. And it is, but it, it there are more similarities than, I, that, than you would imagine as well. So my, my role at Caring was um, in the headquarters at group level to l- work with the brands because there are a number of, you know, brands yeah. within the, Dozens, the, the group course. level houses. Yep. And understand what is it that they're looking for primarily? What are their priorities? What are they most focused on? And then work to be able to identify uh, across the entire value chain from raw materials to end of life, business models, you know, the whole thing, digital, um, identify what is out there, uh, which would be the best ones to match with the pain points we're seeing internally, and then kind of move them through the funnel so that they're working with um, more operational arms within, at this point, the caring group. So the material innovation lab or others that could test. So yeah, yeah. Um, so the how to make it happen pretty much is identifying what needs improvement and yeah. how do we make it happen. Right. So that whole process, I think, is similar no matter where you are. You want to identify the best technologies. You want to be able to test them. I guess the difference um, that you find with Pangaea in particular is this laser focus on material science innovation so that there's so much resource put into 
this part of the business. And most companies, most brands do not have a 15 person innovation team looking across very specifically like this is the person looking at dye solutions. This is a person working on, on trim solutions. This is a person, you know, like just really specialized in being able to, to focus on what is, you know, what is the best technology in this specific domain? So that's something that's different and yeah. wonderful. I mean, there are some brands that, that do have incredibly strong R&D teams, but by and large, it's rare within apparel. Of course. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's a big boat is a lot more difficult for it to be agile. And yep. that, mm-hmm. that, that is very, very mm-hmm. blatant and clear when, when, you, when you put it that way. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's that, but it's also about the fact that we're it, the, the focus of it. You know, if I think if you're a, a, in a big group, there are many things you have to be concerned with. Of course. Um, and if it's a public group, for example, you have more exposure potentially from a liability point of view. Um, so you can't necessarily drive so the much complexity into- because there's there's mm-hmm. 20 brands with different branding identities and philosophies and priorities. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I, I love this focus part. I love also that um, there, the, the connection with the supply chain. So, you know, I think uh, historically, and this is, this is changing, I believe overall, because brands are seeing that if we want to make the sustainability targets a reality, we have to be closer to our suppliers because for the last 50 years, it's been very arm's length. It's been very transactional, very top down, like the brand is giving the supplier orders and, you really, you need to develop those partnerships and, and uh, it's a long-term relationship. And now this is, everybody's kind of realizing that we, we need to embrace, embrace these relationships more, which I think is great. Okay. Awesome. And one last question when mm-hmm. it comes to, I mean, because when you're dealing with again, complexity like that, again, it's most important part is to simplify it and is what needs to be innovated, what needs to be solved, what needs to be improved, identifying that, and then just trying to understand the how do we improve it or how do we solve it, right? Mm-hmm. When you're in a, in a company like Pangaya, obviously that process is a lot simpler because it's okay. This is who we are, yeah. very clear. This is the brand. This is what we have to do. This is the problem. Mm-hmm. What can we do to fix it? And is it a problem that falls into an, our area of, of specialty and the things that we do, or is it not? But when you're dealing with, with again, a, an entire group, th- identifying and prioritizing must probably be also a lot more difficult. So how do you make those decisions? Like what, what? I am so glad you're asking this question. Mm-hmm. This is a great question because it's, you have to look at the impact data. You have to look at data. And um, when you're working like in my domain or when you're looking at sustainability and the fashion industry has been very bad at collecting this data so far. Many industries have, it's getting better. The technology, as we mentioned, is, is enabling this so that we can collect more that we haven't been able to do in the last 10 years ago, the visibility on the supply chain we get can get all of that. But you ideally, if you want to achieve the most impact, you have to look at the data and say, okay, well then what do I need to focus on to achieve the most impact? And um, so that's why things like the life cycle assessments are important to look at. Um, There are a lot of different, you know, resources available to help young starting brands sort of look look to this and, and, and understand you still need to prioritize and say, my focus will be really this. But even within carbon, for example, there are many ways you can break that down and say, okay, 
this should be my, my real, if I'm going to look at carbon, this should be my real focus, even within that, because the impact data shows that this is where I can have the most uh, return on a return on investment for impact. Like okay. that's what you need to look at. Right. So it's more about what's the return on investment on impact more than what's the return on investment financially short term necessarily for the next quarter. Ideally, if or you like want to have like a, a mix, double, right. double or triple bottom line approach, then yeah, you're going to have to take that into account. Um, the, the way that uh, you can look at, are you a financially driven company or a mission driven company is really to say, where are you maximizing? Where are you optimizing? If you're trying to maximize profit and optimize on impact, then that's going to be your first port of port of call is mm. how do I maximize maximize my revenue or my profit in this case? If you want to be impact driven, then you're saying, where am I going to have the most impact? And then of course, you still need a sustainable business model, or you're not going to be in business at all. And you won't achieve that impact anyway. But mm. you have to kind of it, it, it really depends on on what your goal is as a business, which side you, you fall on and you really you have to clearly define that or it's going to be quite muddled. Yeah. And, and it goes back to the, I mean, the common denominator of the conversation of understand what part you're playing and focusing mm -hmm. on that because mm -hmm. it's going to reflect from, again, the complexity of the business model to the complexity of making decisions because yeah. it is about, yeah, you need to understand data, but what data do you focus on? Well, that's relative to who you are as a business. What's, yeah. What are your goals? What mm -hmm. are you trying to achieve? And mm -hmm. again, if you're mm -hmm. not specific on that, it's going to be impossible to sort of move forward on, it, on that end. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Wow, very interesting. Awesome. And one very, very last question, short question before we wrap this episode up uh, would be if you could give a, a young entrepreneur or young person trying to develop themselves in this part of the industry, uh, a, a specific, specific advice would be the biggest piece of advice that you'd give him, her, or yourself, if that was the case mm -hmm. and why? I, I always believe that you should not limit yourself at all. Um, you sh should go after whatever you are the most passionate about that you believe in the most and go 150% after that. Uh, I think that's really, you need to be lit up by what you're doing at, to be successful. So that would be the thing that I would say is the most important. Don't, don't say, oh, but I've never done it before. Oh, but I didn't do, um, I, I don't have the right skill level right now. If you don't work on it, do it, you know, get there and, and just be, be focused on like, what is it that resonates with you the most where you're the most passionate and don't limit yourself in how you're going to get there. Just, you know, work hard, develop your network. That's incredibly important as always. Um, and get there and work on it and don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Cause if someone's, if, if you have a bunch of people telling you, you can't do it, then you're onto something really good. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's special if it comes from a very true, true place for yourself. Yeah. Cause sometimes if you don't have the experience, you'll come in with fresh eyes and you'll do it completely differently and revolutionize something um, that others can't see because they've mm -hmm. been too locked in the system. So yeah. yeah be awesome. my message. Mm -hmm. Wow. What an incredible conversation, Christine. <laughs> Again, uh, I wish we had a, you know, well, with these topics, I can always talk for hours. So I always, yeah. I always complain about time anyway. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm again, Thank I think you. really, really valuable conversation yeah. and, and hope to have you back on again sometime in the future. Thanks, Esteban. I really appreciate your, your invitation. And uh, I hope that uh, other people get inspired by some of the, some of the discussion we had and want to go out and start their own companies and really make a change. Mm-hmm. <laughs>